This program is made possible by members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, The Young Turks, The Majority Report, The Johan Hari Podcast, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Progressive, Media Matters, Mumia Abu-Jamal, and Jim Hightower with a bonus clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Onion. Here is your first quote. Bust, flat broke, insolvent, belly up, ruined, potless. That was Frank Kane writing for the website The National. After the company Standard & Poor's decided that who might not be as credit worthy as they used to be. Who's almost belly up, ruined, and potless? I think that might be the United States of America. Indeed it is. Congratulations. Standard & Poor's didn't actually say the U.S. was a bad investment. They said it might be soon. They moved the country's future outlook from, quote, stable to negative. We went from being the world's sole remaining superpower to the country that asked to crash in Canada's basement until we could get it together. <laughs> and now Canada wants its futon back. What? I thought we were friends, man. Look, man, I, I just think it's time for you to get a continent of your own, okay? It's just, it's just a couple more weeks, man. You're not going to use all that health care, are you? <laughs> um, <laughs> See, but all right, if we do default on our debt, they say we'll become a third world country instantly. Big crisis. No. But what's wrong with that? Why not embrace that? A third world United States would finally get interested in soccer. Right. That's true. We, we could enjoy the thrills of bringing your livestock onto public transportation. I've always right. wanted to do that. We'll and be best on of bikes. all, if we were a third world country, maybe Nike would finally consider building a factory here. There you go. It's not an economic apocalypse, it's a jobs program. It's an opportunity. I know when I walk out the door in the morning, I'm always disappointed not to see chickens in the street. <laughs> On job of the day, we have massive, giant, colossal Republican hypocrisy on the debt. As the debate over the debt ceiling heats up, Republicans are trying to deceive Americans about where all that debt actually came from. South Carolina Congressman Mick Mulvaney blamed Democratic policies for getting the country in the red, saying, quote, it's their debt, make them do it, that's my attitude, referring to raising the debt ceiling. The only problem with that statement is that it is entirely untrue. Republicans are the ones who built the giant deficits, not the Democrats. Bush administration policies like tax cuts for the wealthy, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and the Medicare prescription drug benefit added more than $3.2 trillion to the debt. Now that's compared to $600 billion worth of stimulus and tax cuts from President Obama. And by the way, that stimulus was made necessary by the gigantic economic crash brought to you by the Republicans. And it's not just Bush. The GOP has been a disaster on this for a long time. The last Democratic president to balance the budget? Bill Clinton. 
the last Republican? Dwight Eisenhower. I never tire of saying that. They never balance the budget. Never, ever, ever, ever. Well, since Eisenhower, at least. And remember that Clinton left office with a $127 billion surplus. Eight years later, George W. Bush was running a $1.3 trillion deficit. That's the deficit, of course, that the Republicans are now complaining about. Oh, the Democrats! Except for the fact that the Democrats balance the budget and you guys don't. But rewriting history isn't the only part of this con job. Republicans know in order to keep the country on the right track, raising the debt ceiling is inevitable. John Boehner said so in January. But would, do you agree with administration officials and other economists that defaulting on the full faith and credit of the United States would be a financial disaster? That would be a financial disaster not only for our country but for the worldwide economy. So even though Boehner knows raising the ceiling is necessary, he's looking at it as a new opportunity to push the Republican agenda anyway. He told a group of supporters this weekend that there's no way the Republicans will support raising the limit quote, without something really, really big attached to it, meaning giant spending cuts again. Now what happened? I thought you didn't want to play politics with the debt ceiling. All of a sudden, you're playing politics with it. So in the end, the GOP causes giant deficits, and then when we have to raise the debt limit to pay for them, they hold the country hostage to further their agenda that got us in the debt in the first place. That's not just the con job of the day, that's been their con job for the last 30 years. Play this. I didn't play it on the um, on the uh, main show yesterday. I want you to hear this. We have posted this clip at Majority.fm. You must hear this because I know your friends, your conservative friends and family, do not believe that Saint Ronald Reagan ever raised taxes. They will tell you that he lowered taxes and doubled revenue uh, in the uh, uh, during his administration. What they will not tell you is that if you account for inflation and the taxes that Reagan raised, he did no such thing. What they will not tell you is that the eight years prior to Reagan saw an even greater expanse of revenue and the eight years following also more revenue at a higher tax rate. But what you can tell them is if they have an issue with the idea that Ronald Reagan raised taxes, they should listen to this clip of Ronald Reagan's budget director, David Stockman, saying this when asked the question by Krista Freeland on, what was it, Meet the Press or This Week on ABC just this past week. 
Question for you. Yes. You worked for Ronald Reagan. Do you think that America, the American economy, so you're like a red-blooded capitalist, could it sustain higher taxes than it has now? Absolutely. In 1982, we were looking at the jaws of the worst recession since the 1930s. We overdid it in 81, cut taxes too much. We came back with a big deficit plan in 1982. Unemployment's 10%. The economy's in dire shape. And we raised taxes by 1.2% of GDP, which would be $150 billion a year right now. Not 10 years down the road, but right now. That's what we did in 1982, because we still had people in government who realized you can't simply be putting on this kind of debt into the world financial market. Turn off the sound. I can't breathe. I'm having a heart attack. They raised it by 1.2% of GDP? What the heck? That's not possible. Not Ronald Reagan. No. I'm getting the vapors. Oh, my Lord. I've always, I've always relied on the stranger, on the kindness of strangers. And now I hear the, the St. Ronald Reagan. He raised taxes by 1.2% GDP of GDP. Hundreds of millions of billions of dollars of raising taxes. Oh, my Lord. Oh, someone hand me my hematization card. I think I'm having a heart attack. And one silent teardrop drops from the top of the Heritage Foundation building in downtown Washington, D.C. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal, it will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. By now, you probably think that your opinion of Goldman Sachs and its swarm of Wall Street allies has rock-bottomed at raw loathing. You're wrong. There's more. It turns out the most destructive of all their recent acts has barely been reported or discussed at all. So here's the rest. This is the story of how some of the richest people in the world, Goldman, Deutsche Bank, the traders at Merrill Lynch and more, have caused the starvation of some of the poorest people in the world. It starts with an apparent mystery. At the end of 2006, food prices all across the world started to rise, suddenly and stratospherically. Within a year, the price of wheat had shot up by 80%, maize had gone up by 90%, and rice had gone up by 320%. In a global jolt of hunger, 200 million people, most of them kids, couldn't afford to get food anymore, and sank into malnutrition or starvation. There were riots in more than 30 countries, at least one government was violently overthrown, and then, in spring 2008, prices just as mysteriously fell back to their previous level. 
Jean Ziegler, the UN special rapporteur on the right to food, called it silent mass murder. And he said it was, quote, entirely due to man-made actions, end quote. Last year, I was in Ethiopia, one of the worst hit countries. And people there remember the food crisis as if they had been struck by a tsunami. My children stopped growing, a woman my age called Abiba Gatane told me. I felt like battery acid had been poured into my stomach as I starved. I took my two daughters out of school and got into debt. If it had gone on much longer, I think my baby would have died. Most of the explanations we were given at the time have turned out to be false. It didn't happen because supply fell. The International Grain Council says global production of wheat actually increased during that period, for example. It isn't because demand grew either. As Professor, J- Professor Jayati Ghosh of the Centre for Economic Studies in New Delhi has shown, demand actually fell by 3% in that period. Other factors, like the rise of biofuels and the spike in the oil price, did make a contribution, but they aren't enough on their own to explain such a violent shift. To understand the biggest cause, you have to plough through some concepts that will make your head ache, but not half as much as they made the poor world's stomachs ache. For over a century, farmers in wealthy countries have been able to engage in a process where they protect themselves against risk. Farmer Giles can agree in January to sell his crop to a trader in August at a fixed price. So if he has a great summer, he'll lose some cash, but if there's a shitty summer or the global price collapses, he'll do pretty well from the deal. When this process was tightly regulated and only companies with a direct interest in the field could get involved, obviously it it worked. But then, through the 1990s, Goldman Sachs and others lobbied hard and the regulations surrounding this were pretty much abolished. Suddenly, these contracts were turned into derivatives that could be bought and sold among traders who had nothing to do with agriculture. The market in food speculation was reborn. So, Farmer Giles can still agree to sell his crop in advance to a trader for £10,000. But now, that contract can be sold on to speculators, who treat the contract itself as an object of potential wealth. So, Goldman Sachs can buy it and they can sell it for twenty grand to Deutsche Bank, who can sell it for thirty grand to Merrill Lynch, and on and on until it seems to bear almost no relationship to Father Giles' crop at all. If this seems a bit weird and mystifying, that's because it is. John Lanchester, in his amazing guide to the world of finance, whoops, why everybody owes everyone and no one can pay, explains, finance, like other forms of behaviour, underwent a change in the 20th century, a shift equivalent to the emergence of modernism in the arts. It was a break with common sense, a turn towards self-referentiality and abstraction and notions that can't be explained in workaday English. Poetry broke with realism when T.S. Eliot wrote The Wasteland, Finance found its wasteland moment in the 1970s, when it began to be dominated by really complex financial instruments that even the people selling them didn't fully understand. So you might be thinking, what has this got to do with the bread on a Bieber's plate? Until deregulation, the price for food was set by the forces of supply and demand for food itself. This was already imperfect, it left a billion people hungry. But after deregulation, it was no longer just a market in food. It became, at the same time, a market in food contracts based on theoretical future crops, and the speculators drove the price through the roof. Here's how it happened. In 2006, financial speculators like Goldman's 
pulled out of the collapsing American real estate market. They reckoned that food prices would stay steady or rise while the rest of the economy tanked. So they switched loads of their speculative funds into that area. Suddenly, most of the world's frightened investors stampeded onto this ground. So while the supply and demand of food stayed pretty much the same, the supply and demand for derivatives based on food massively rose, which meant that all rolled into one price shot up and the starvation began. The bubble only burst in March 2008 when the situation got so bad in the US and the speculators had to slash their spending on food speculation to cover their losses back home. When I asked Merrill Lynch's spokesman to comment on the charge of causing mass hunger, he said, these were his exact words, huh, I didn't know about that. He later emailed to say, I'm going to decline to comment on this one. Deutsche Bank also refused to comment. Goldman Sachs were more detailed, saying they sold their index in early 2007 and pointing out that, quote, serious analyses have concluded index funds did not cause a bubble in commodity futures prices, offering as evidence a statement by the OECD. But how do we know this is wrong? As Professor, Professor Ghosh points out, some vital crops are not traded on the futures market, including millet and cassava and potatoes. Their price rose a little bit during this period, but only a fraction as much as the ones affected by food speculation. Her research showed that food speculation was the main cause of this rise. So it's come to this. The world's wealthiest speculators set up a casino where the chips were the stomachs of hundreds of millions of innocent people. They gambled on increasing starvation and they won. Their wasteland moment created a real wasteland. What does it say about our political and economic system that we can so casually inflict so much pain and hardly even notice? If we don't re-regulate, it's only a matter of time before this all happens again. How many people will it kill next time? The moves to restore the pre-1990s rules on commodities trading have been stunningly sluggish. In the US, the House has passed some regulation, but there are fears that the Senate, which is drenched in donations from speculators, will dilute it into meaninglessness. The EU is lagging far behind even this pathetic standard. While in Britain, where most of this trade takes place, advocacy groups are worried that David Cameron's government will block reform entirely to please his friends and donors in the city. Only one force can stop another speculation starvation bubble. The decent people in developed countries need to shout louder than the lobbyists from Goldman Sachs. The brilliant organisation, the World Development Movement, has had weeks of pressure last summer and they're planning another one as crucial decisions on this are taken. If you want to get involved, text WDM to the number 82055 to find out what you can do. The last time I spoke to her, Abiba said, we can't go through that another time. Please, make sure they never, never do that to us again. Wake up, God. Move yourself. Wicked men. Crush your children. We pray. We wait. How long until you say, never again.
the victims And you hold them in your hands And you listen to their prayers Their prayers The big headline about the Paul Ryan budget is, of course, that it abolishes, kills, does away with Medicare. No matter what Republicans try to tell you over the next few months, they voted to abolish Medicare today. What's less known about the Ryan budget, though, is that it contains about $4 trillion worth of tax cuts, mostly for the wealthy and for corporations. Now, the conceptual terrain that Ryan budget has come to occupy in the minds of the Beltway represents, I think thus far, probably the greatest victory for a two-year-old movement that essentially began, lest we forget, two years ago today. Remember two years ago today? The big inaugural tax day tea party held in cities and states across the country. From the Alamo to the nation's capital, legions of tea partiers flooded into the public square to demand an end to the oppressive taxation in this country. The symbolism of the tea party, the fact that it had its first protest on tax day was no accident. In the imagination of the American right, taxes essentially represent the boot of tyranny. Taxes are the fundamental means by which the government restrains our freedom. And explicit in the Tea Party movement is the notion that we are overtaxed. T, as the signs at these events will often inform you, stands for taxed enough already. Now, that taxed enough already narrative has taken on tremendous force when we talk about our current budget situation. Because there are two sides to the budget letter, ledger, taxes and spending. But thanks to the Tea Party and an incredibly well-funded set of corporate interests and wealthy people who don't want to see their taxes go up ever, the conversation that we're having about the budget right now is almost exclusively a conversation about the spending side. Washington does not have a revenue problem. Washington has a spending problem. Because we don't have a revenue problem, we have a spending problem. Washington does not have a revenue problem, it's got a spending problem. America has a spending problem, not a tax problem. Even the Democrats, in their own weird way, have sort of conceded this point. Earlier this week, President Obama unveiled his budget priorities, and it was three to one in favor of spending cuts rather than new taxes. Why three to one? Who knows? Perhaps it is because, in the words of the Tea Party, we are just taxed enough already. But are we taxed enough already? Or, or is it possible that we are perhaps, dare I say it, undertaxed? Is there such a thing? Let's take a look. Compared to other parts of the world, we are quite undertaxed, actually. All the countries that are scrolling up from the bottom of the screen right now are countries that have higher taxes than we do. The United States ranks 20th in the world in terms of tax burden. So compared to the rest of the world, we have low, relatively low taxes. Well, you will hear, we're not socialists like France. We don't need high taxes like they do. OK, OK, forget about the other countries then. How taxed are we right now compared to how taxed we've been in the past? The answer to that question is truly remarkable. When you look at almost every metric, we are at historic lows in terms of taxation in this country. What you're looking at right now are corporate taxes collected over the last 60 years as a percentage of GDP. Here's where we were in the 1950s and then watch what happens. Look at that. Corporate tax revenue has sunk like a rock over the last 60 years. It's now near its lowest point ever. By now, we've all heard of the paltry tax burden paid by a certain parent company whose name rhymes with Benerils Electric, right? Well, that really is the rule rather than the exception these days. Corporate taxes are as low as they've ever been. Okay, well, what about the wealthy? 
The wealthy are getting crushed by taxes right now, right? You hear that from the Tea Party. You really do. You hear stuff like this all the time. Already, the top 1% of income earners pay about 40% of all uh, taxes into the federal government. So if you want to talk about fairness, the top 1% are paying 40% of all of the income. Ah, this is a very deft bit of sleight of hand. Conservatives, in arguing against taxes going up in the wealthy, want to get you to focus on what percentages of all income taxes are paid by the wealthy. Maybe your conservative coworker has sent you an email about this, or your kid's baseball coach, or your right-wing dad. The wealthy pay all the income tax in this country. Everyone else is just along for the ride. The sleight of hand here is that's just income taxes. Middle class and working class and poor people pay payroll taxes, and they pay sales taxes, they pay tons of state and local taxes, they pay their fair share. The wealthy, on the other hand, look at what's happened to their marginal tax rate over the last five decades. Does that pattern look familiar at all? What we've been seeing, the central fact of the American economy over the last several de decades is an increase in inequality, with more income going to the people at the very top. At the same time, the people at the very top have seen their tax burden decrease. This week, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist David K. Johnston published a great article called Nine Things the Rich Don't Want You to Know About Taxes. In it, I learned for the first time that every year, the IRS conducts this study of the 400 wealthiest tax filers. And what the data revealed recently is remarkable. According to Johnston, the average American pays about 22% of their income to federal taxes. The richest 400 Americans, 16%, pay about 16% of their income to federal taxes. So, the wealthy need to pay more taxes, right? That's what President Obama is now calling for in the Democratic Party. But President Obama is also saying that everyone else's taxes must not go up. And this is where it gets tricky, because that may not necessarily be true. It's true that in the midst of a recession, raising taxes on middle-class folks is almost certainly a bad idea. But even the middle class right now is, by historical perspective, undertaxed. Here's what average families paid in income taxes in 1955. Now watch what happens. Again, near the lowest level in half a century. If we just allowed all of the Bush tax to expire, we'd be looking at a budget that is far closer to being balanced. Oliver Wendell Holmes once said that taxes are what we pay for civilization. And as this budget battle continues, as the lines get drawn, as, as the center gets shifted away from discussions of taxation, I think it's really important we keep in mind that as we have an aging population and a more prosperous population, certain parts of government are just going to cost more. And that's not a bad thing. It's the benefit of prosperity and long age. Yes, we need to control things like healthcare costs, but we're also just gonna have to all pay a little more to make sure that we have the social contract that we deserve. You almost certainly won't be hearing that from any elected official anytime soon, but it's still the truth.
point to a small protest against Paul Ryan at the Madison Club earlier this week. And one of the chants there was, how do you solve the deficit? Tax, tax, tax the rich. I thought the chant was clever and in his face, but what I didn't realize was that this chant was perfectly in accordance with the wishes of the vast majority of the American public. A new McClatchy Marist poll shows that voters by a margin of 64% to 33% support raising taxes on those earning above 250 grand to help solve the problem of the deficit. That's bad news for Paul Ryan and the Republicans. And there's worse news, too. Ryan's proposal to cut Medicare and Medicaid is opposed by a whopping 80% of the American public, including 68% of conservatives. As much as Ryan and the Republicans have been pounding away at Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, it's a healthy sign that the American public isn't buying what they're selling. There's a battle raging right now over whether to preserve these last remnants of a decent society. Ryan and the Republicans want to trash them but they may be trashing their electoral futures in the process. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. We're about to tell you one of the most important stories of, about our government that you'll ever hear. It is the story of how our government has a shadow budget that is totally unaccountable to the people, is set up to help the richest people in the world, and plays with trillions of dollars of our money. Now that sounds unbelievable, but it actually is totally true. Now speaking of unbelievable, it has already given $220 million in bailout money to the completely unqualified wives of Wall Street bankers. And if they lose the money, well, you have to eat their losses. But if they make a profit, they get to keep all of it. And if you think that's bad, Walmart Gaddafi even gets to play this game on our dime. So what is this shadow system? Well, it's called the Federal Reserve. And what they're doing with your money is absolutely outrageous. And we have the man who broke this story with us now to tell us more about it. Matt Taibbi is a contributing editor for Rolling Stone. His latest, latest article is called The Real Housewives of Wall Street. Matt, great to have you here. Great to be here, Jack. All right, Matt, first let's start with this different form of a bailout that people might not be familiar with. What is the Fed doing in this version of the bailout? Well, originally the bailouts were used to target and rescue specific institutions like Bear Stearns and Fannie and Freddie and AIG, and then from there, that you know, there was the broader bailout effort in the in, in the fall of 2008, the TARP that was really about uh, rescuing insolvent banks and cleaning up genuinely toxic mortgage-backed securities and getting those out of the system. But once Wall Street saw all that public money coming their way, they they basically started saying to the Fed and, and to the to the government, "Hey, we'd sure like." a government guarantee to invest in student loans and credit cards and aircraft loans and commercial mortgages and pretty much anything else you can think of. And that's when this whole other galaxy of bailout programs started to come uh, down the pipe. And they all have names of that people never heard of, like the TALF and the TAF and the PPIP. Uh, and essentially, all these programs, and they're you know, cumulatively about you know, many trillions of dollars, uh, they extended government guarantees and, and gave away more or less free money 
to hedge funds and other Wall Street characters to invest in uh, all these different varieties of securities. Uh, and they got to keep the winnings and then we had to eat the losses. Matt, the, the thing that outrages me is that, it, like before in the past, they had to go to the Treasury and get money from the United States Congress, right? They, it had to be approved and eventually there were consequences for those votes, right? Now this seems like an end run around the Treasury and around Congress. Can the Fed just do that? Can they just print trillions of dollars and give it to whoever they like? Well, that's a complicated question. The Fed's, you know, doesn't have a, an infinite balance sheet. It does have, uh, you know, a, a cap on how much money it can spend. Although, in a couple of instances in the last couple of years, it, ha it has had a couple of programs called quantitative easing, where they've literally printed new money and just started spending it. But that's not what really what happened here. But you're right; it is an end run around Congress. Most people are uh, think of the bailouts as TARP, which was an 800 billion dollar program that used Treasury money, in other words, taxpayer money, uh, and that was very tightly controlled, and when they gave out that money, it came with very stringent controls. In other words, you had to reduce the amount of compensation you gave to your executives if you took this money. But these other Fed programs are completely unaccountable. Uh, they, until very recently, were shrouded in complete mystery and were completely unaccountable to any elected officials. So if they're unaccountable, of course, you eventually get abuse. And it seems like the tale of these Wall Street wives is an excellent example of that. Tell us about their story. Well, what's the backstory of this is, you know, the, all of these transactions were secret up until very recently when there was a bipartisan coalition of, uh, of people in Congress that included Ron Paul and Alan Grayson and Bernie Sanders, and they attempted to open up the Fed's books. And while they didn't succeed in getting the entire history of the Fed's books open, they did get this two-year period from the end of 07 to 09 when they got to look at all these bailout transactions. And among these 21,000 bailout transactions were a number of crazy names and just for the sake of trying to sell this story to my editors and to, to try to attract readers to this issue we you know we picked out the the craziest name in the list and that was uh, Christy Mack and Susan Karchus and Christy Mack is uh, is the wife of uh, John Mack who at the time uh, was the CEO of Morgan Stanley uh, and as far as we can tell their only qualification for getting a 220 million dollar uh, loan from the Fed in order to buy student loans and, and commercial mortgages was that they were married to Wall Street executives. So they don't have any previous experience, but it doesn't matter because they can't lose. Tell us about these non-recourse loans, because that, that's another part of this outrage that, you know what, if they lose, we have to put up the money. I can't believe that. How does that work? Well, the way this works is that basically the Fed says, here, here's a whole bunch of money. Go out and, you know, go with God and buy a whole bunch of securities or whatever it is you can find, uh, you know, mortgages, student loans, credit card loans, whatever it is. Uh, you go buy the securities, you give them to us. If they go up in value, you take them back. If they go down in value, we keep it and we eat the losses. That's basically the way a non-recourse loan works. Now, they had to pay a small premium of less than 10% on the valuation of these securities. So they did have a little bit of skin in the game. They, they, they stood to lose a little bit. But basically, if the, if the stuff went up in value, they kept everything. And if it went down in value, they, they, the losses were basically almost all ours. All right. And finally, Matt, how is Gaddafi involved in all this? <laughs> you know. Uh, aside from all the hedge fund millionaires and billionaires that are on this list, there are a number of really crazy names. Uh, you know, there's the uh, the Bank of Bavaria, the Development Bank of South Korea, Volkswagen, Toyota, Mitsubishi. But there's also a company called the Arab Banking Corporation of Bahrain, which is a 63% owned uh, entity of the Central Bank of Libya, which somehow got a 
$35 billion uh, line of credit from the Federal Reserve uh, through emergency lending programs. And uh, nobody can figure out yet exactly what the rationale behind that was, uh, but it's definitely on this list of transactions. Stop giving away our money, man. This is crazy. <laughs> All right, Matt, incredible reporting. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. But the banks are made of marble With a guard at every door And the bolts are stuffed with silver That the farmer sweated for I've seen the seamen standing Idly by the shore And I heard their bosses saying Got no work for you no more But the banks are made of marble With a guard at every door We begin tonight uh, with a story that is not happening in Washington, D.C. So uh, most of the Beltway press will not tell you that it's happening at all. But it is the story that I think is the single most telling thing in American politics right now about the difference between the two parties, about the choice and basic philosophy that we've got to make about how we shall be governed as Americans. Despite what you will hear day in, day out from Washington, the difference between the two parties right now is not about President Obama versus House Speaker John Boehner, or even if you want to get really geeky, uh, between Senator Harry Reid and Congressman Paul Ryan. We tend to talk about politics in those terms, in terms of personalities, obviously, or the radical budget proposal of the week that's never going anywhere, but will drag the whole country to the right in policy terms anyway while it's trying. Uh, we tend to talk about politics in America like that. But frankly, those are stand-ins for the real debate, for the real debate between the two parties' visions of what government ought to do, of what politics are for, not about what people say they're for, but how they will act if they are in office. And if you want to know about that, you have to go here to Michigan's Great Southwest, to the little twin cities on the shore of Lake Michigan. Last night we talked about how one of these twin cities, St. Joseph, population 8,500, is nearly 90% white, has a per capita income of about $33,000. The other twin city, right across there, uh, is Benton Harbor. Benton Harbor, population 10,000 plus, it is nearly 90% black. Benton Harbor has a per capita income of about $10,000, a third of what its twin city enjoys. Michigan's new Republican governor is a man named Rick Snyder. Governor Snyder has spent his first few months in office engaged in an aggressive campaign to strip Michiganders union rights and to pass big new taxes on the poor and the elderly, using that revenue not to plug the state's budget deficit, but rather to give it away to corporations and to the already well-off. Uh, that platform has not been kind to Governor Snyder's popularity. But the one thing in Mr. Snyder's approach to governing that brought out the biggest protests in the capital Reportedly, the biggest protest that Lansing, Michigan had ever seen. The catalyst for those huge crowds, those thousands of people, was in part a Rick Snyder law that takes away people's right to choose their local elected officials. A law that allows the state to declare your town a failure and to appoint an emergency financial person to be the new boss over the elected officials in your town. 
Someone who can order them to do things, who can undo what they have done as elected officials, who can fire them if he or she so decides. The state is not only coming in and saying, we don't care who you elected to represent you, we're firing them and taking over ourselves. The state is also claiming the power to just abolish your town. When was your town founded? Who were your town founding fathers or founding mothers? The state says, we can dissolve your town now. We could wipe you off the map, give your land and your assets to the next town over if we want to, just roll up the whole deal and deed it over. Your town doesn't get a say in the matter. The first town to feel the tender ministrations of Governor Snyder's new law uh, is Little Benton Harbor, one of the poorest towns in the state. And yes, despite the Rust Belt decline that has defined life in Benton Harbor for decades, Benton Harbor is also home to the global headquarters for Whirlpool Appliances. Among the heirs to the Whirlpool Appliances fortune is Benton Harbor's Republican Congressman Fred Upton. A former Fred Upton staffer, uh, Republican State Rep Al Pasholka, he represents Benton Harbor in the State House. He's the person who introduced the emergency state takeover bill that Governor Rick Snyder signed. This is their ceremonial reenacting of the signing there. Until last year, Mr. Pasholka served on the board of directors for a nonprofit that wants to build a half billion dollar. 530-acre lakefront Jack Nicholas-designed golf course and luxury real estate development that would span both relatively wealthy St. Joseph and poor little Benton Harbor, a development that eats the one collective asset that Benton Harbor had, Benton Harbor's beautiful beachfront park. It would turn it into a place where caddies carry bags for Whirlpool executives and for rich folks who drive in from Chicago for a weekend at their new luxury signature home. I don't know what a signature home is, but they're very expensive and they're part of the whole golf course deal. Benton Harbor's park, Gene Clock Park, was deeded as a gift to the town, one of the poorest towns in Michigan. Uh, it was deeded to the town in perpetuity in 1917. Perpetuity, I guess, is not as long as it used to be, because now Benton Harbor residents are looking at a golf course uh, where the cost of an annual pass for a family to play there is $5,000. $5,000 is half the average annual income of actual families living in Benton Harbor. This golf course development thing is not for them. And neither, apparently, is Democratic local government. On Friday, Benton Harbor's new state-appointed emergency overseer, Joe Harris, uh, issued an executive order that restricted the mayor and the city commissioners uh, to three duties. They can call a meeting, they can approve the meeting minutes, and they can adjourn the meeting. Three things that elected officials of Benton Harbor are now allowed to do. That's it. That story broke in the Michigan Messenger, which is one of the few media outlets that has been covering this story with diligence. Last night, as we were covering the story of Benton Harbor, the Benton Harbor City Commission met for the first time since the emergency manager guy there told them that they, you know, had been turned into pillars of salt, more or less. Uh, the manager knew this meeting apparently might get a little bit hot. He set up a two-minute timer for anyone who wanted to speak up at this meeting, uh, and this is what he got from local residents. Somebody about to go, and I think it's gonna have to be Joe. That's right. He's not even an elected official. That's right. He's gonna fire, he's gonna fire the man. How you gonna fire a man? Adolf Hitler was a dictator. Now we have a dictator in Joseph Harris. We have allowed this man to be too comfortable in our home. We're not gonna let it stop. Uh, the foot of a so-called giant who's really a grasshopper. And ain't nobody gonna take this from me or my voice, because the Constitution still do stand, and I have a voice, and ain't no piece of paper gonna take that from me. 
Godwin's Law, notwithstanding, uh, that's how it went last night in Benton Harbor, Michigan. Uh, as the Michigan blog, Electa blog, that's been covering the story, pointed out, it is sort of striking that some of the Republicans in Washington now are spending their down-to-the-wire, shut-down-the-government budget meetings trying to defund four of President Obama's policies ours. Remember this? There are four jobs that are not filled, so it's a move that is purely symbolic. It carries precisely zero implications for federal policy. It's just that they are supposedly ideologically opposed to czars now, and they want eliminating czars to be one of the things that they might shut down the federal government in order to do. But when it comes to czars, when it really comes to czars, what's happening in Benton Harbor, Michigan is kind of czar with a capital C or T, depending on how you spell it. This is really, really, really big intrusive government. This is sit down, shut up, your elections don't matter, we're in charge now, authoritarian, giant government. And this ought to be the debate about what's on offer right now from American politics. This ought to be the debate about the two major parties right now, about whether we are okay as Americans with really big take over your town intrusive government, because that is what is on offer. I realize that the debate in D.C. is going to be about the gang of six, whether the Democrats are really going to let them change the Social Security retirement age, and that is fine. That is a real debate. It is important, but on, on, on real policy, real implications, real governing, not what people are saying they're going to do, but what they're actually doing, there is a stark choice to notice and debate out in the states. Florida, Texas, Arkansas, North and South Carolina now moving to require you to take a drug test, forced drug testing, as part of getting the unemployment benefits that you paid for when you were working. Arizona and Georgia passing laws that force anyone to prove they're in the country legally whenever a police officer wants to know. Papers, please. States across the country saying they will decide whether or not you can get an abortion and what your doctor is allowed to say to you about abortions in your doctor's appointment. The government will give you a script. The government will decide what your doctor says and what you are allowed to do. The government decides now, not you. State governments in Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, and Tennessee are acting to strip people of their union rights. You might have heard something about that. This is big, intrusive, activist government put into motion and into law at state houses around the country. Our Republican-controlled legislatures right now are filled with politicians who campaigned on small government and respecting the will of the voter, trademark. And then they got into office and they really started doing quite radically the opposite. In Montana this month, Democratic Governor Brian Schweitzer, remember he heated up his veto brand for a long string of bills that had been passed by the new Republican legislature in Montana. One of those bills, a bill to re-criminalize medical marijuana. The Republicans' bill would overturn a law passed by the people of Montana in a referendum in 2004. Another one of those Republican-passed laws would have allowed the return of cyanide leaching in mines. Voters had outlawed that through referendum not once but twice in Montana. But the Republican bill would have overturned what the voters said they wanted. In Wisconsin, the Republican legislature overturned a Milwaukee referendum that mandated that companies give their workers sick leave. When that got up for the vote in Milwaukee, it got 69% of the vote. The people of Milwaukee want that. Governor Scott Walker says he will overrule those voters. The state legislature will step in. The state will step in. They will overrule those voters. Governor Walker says he will sign that bill. In Missouri last week, the Republican legislature there voted to overturn a citizen referendum that bans puppy mills. Rules about cage size. 
rules on sick animals, feeding, stuff like that. The people of Missouri voted against conditions like these for dogs. And the Republican legislature has now voted to overturn the vote of the people of Missouri. So much for all that will of the people, will of the people um, stuff that everybody's been campaigning on this year. As far removed as all this seems from the slow motion kabuki theater of budget season in Washington, as local and specific as this stuff seems at first glance, I tell you, if political discourse in this country were not dominated by the Beltway media, the entire country tonight, the entire country tonight would be talking about this instead. We'll be talking about puppies in Missouri and Benton Harbor's town park and whether Benton Harbor gets to keep it because they want to. This is the vision of governance in America we ought to be debating. Because regardless of what people say they're going to do when they get in office, this is what's on offer now that they've got there. This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Danny Herrera. The conservative media's reaction to Obama's deficit reduction address was predictable and at times just plain sad. See now, here's my take on it. Had the president broken out graphs and charts like Paul Ryan did, and maybe even did a little video insert like Paul Ryan did, he would have kept people's attention. Possibly. You're giving me a real challenge here to try to explain to people the fallacy in the claim that unpaid for tax cuts is a legitimate economic uh, entry item or premise. Unpaid for tax cuts. Um, see, to me, instinctively, that is communist talk. How does increasing taxes count as spending cuts in your world, Mr. Obama? Maybe in Kenya, but certainly not here. method of their madness. Across America, jowls are tightened and hearts race over rising gas prices, which in turn hikes prices all along the line of product distribution as manufacturers and merchandisers add their increased transportation costs to prices. Americans are surly, shaking their fists at Arab potentates, dreaming wild dreams of desert conquests that will bring this vital resource under U.S. control. What the average American doesn't know is that less than 20% of all imported oil comes from the Middle East, and that the reason for much of the heightened prices is because of pure speculation and fear stoked by news stories of unrest in the region. And what event caused the greatest regional unrest in the past 25 years? The Iraq War. Yeah, the Iraq War. And the unrest has sent oil prices spiking upwards. For example, on the eve of the war, oil sold at $30 a barrel. By spring 2008, it was $126 a barrel. Today, it's $108 per barrel. Still, for the last few years, ExxonMobil made more money on petroleum sales than any company in the history of capital. Last year, Exxon made $30 billion in profits. $30 billion. In an interesting recent interview with USA Today's Maria Bartiromo, Exxon CEO Rex Tillerson told her that there were no supply problems. He said, quote, what's reflected in the price is the uncertainty around what might happen in the months or years ahead if there are further interruptions in supply. Did you get that? 
there are no supply problems, but there might be some a few months or years from now. So we raise the price. In Ebonics, it might be translated thusly. We gonna get mo' money, mo' money, no matter what, sucker. For these ends, wars are fought. Tens, even hundreds of thousands are slain. The Constitution is shredded. The economy is bottomed out. Schools are hollowed out. And politicians are but prostitutes in suits. With my apologies to honest prostitutes. Terrorism is a chimera, a political tool to mask deeper economic drives, to dominate and control the world's sole remaining natural resource, oil. There is a method to this madness. It's called profit. From death row, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. Republican congressional leaders don't seem to be the quickest bunnies in the litter. Having taken their blunt budget acts to Medicare, Medicaid, Head Start, EPA, NPR, and dozens of other popular and effective programs, they then scampered to save one of the least popular and least effective federal programs on the books, the annual taxpayer subsidy for big oil. As gasoline prices were rising to $4 a gallon and higher, the House GOP voted unanimously to let the oil giants continue siphoning $4 billion a year out of our public treasury. All 241 of the Republican-slash-Tea Party House members, with not even one dissenter in the bunch, declared that in this time of a supposed budget crisis, the neediest among us are not the elderly and the poor, but the little waifs of big oil. Meanwhile, ExxonMobil just announced a 69% leap in profits this year, while Chevron, ConocoPhillips, and others are enjoying similar jumps in theirs. Guess what percentage of those enormous profits the corporations are likely to pay in taxes? Zilch. Their lobbyists have punched such gaping holes in our tax code that they can escape paying anything for the privileges and benefits they get from America. Exxon, for one oily example, had a $19 billion profit in 2009, but not only did it pay exactly zero in federal income taxes, it manipulated the system to get a $156 million rebate from us. Likewise, Chevron and ConocoPhillips had multi-billion dollar profits that year, paid not a dime in taxes, and also got refunds. This is Jim Hightower saying, Republican lawmakers had a clear choice in dealing with the deficit, so why did they choose to cut off your granny's health care while helping these corporate billionaires make off like bandits? I guess it's a matter of who you really love.
on the issue of the budget. I can't praise the progressive budget enough. There's a progressive caucus in the House, and they put together a budget. You know what it does? It uh, balances the budget and even gives us a surplus. And it has over a trillion dollars in investment in the country, infrastructure, jobs, etc. Uh, and job training, job assistance, because it's actually about getting Americans back to work. So how in the world do they balance the budget, get us a surplus, which the Republicans aren't even close to doing, right? The Ryan plan doesn't come anywhere near a surplus, right? They say 40 years later it might balance the budget. And, and how in the world do the Democrats balance its surplus and get over a trillion dollars in investment in the country for jobs? Well, they did something very logical. First of all, they cut defense spending because defense spending is out of control. It's gone up 81% in the last 10 years. We do 43% of the military spending of the entire world. We have six times more spending than our closest competitor, China. So can we cut defense spending a little? Of course we can. And then the second thing that they did was they raised taxes. They said, now, I know, in Washington that makes people's heads explode. But look at how simple it is. First, go back to the Clinton tax rates for everybody. Remember, under Clinton, we created 22 million jobs. We had a roaring economy. So obviously that tax rate works. There's no one who can say, oh, at that tax rate, you're hurting the economy. That would be a preposterous argument. So they bring it back to the Clinton rates. On top of that, for only millionaires, they raise it, you know, depending on how much you're making, anywhere from about 10 to 15 percent more. Meaning, if you're in, uh, instead of being charged 35 percent, you get charged 45 percent for any dollar above a million. And I think it goes all the way up to 49 percent for every dollar above a billion. Okay, so now that's everybody paying their fair share. Second of all, they bring capital gains and dividend tax back to uh, being charged as ordinary income, uh, meaning the guys who make money off their investments don't get to do that at 15%. That doesn't make any sense. That's ordinary income, like all of our income is ordinary income. They should be charged at the same rate as we are. Why are the richest people in the country getting charged 15%? It makes no sense. Second of all, they're bringing back the estate tax to the levels that it was when it was at a sane level. Instead of now the rich kids and grandkids like Paris Hilton get to keep all the money without doing anything, without contributing anything to society. Okay, And, uh, and finally, they're killing the tax loopholes that allows all these companies to keep all the money offshore. They say, look, if you earn the money, you pay the taxes. There's no loophole about when you bring the money back into the United States, that's when you have to pay it. That gives them an incentive to not bring it back into the United States, to not create jobs in the United States. That makes no sense. They get rid of that. And voila, budget solved. Shared sacrifice. There are cuts in the plan. Okay, There's shared sacrifice for everybody. And we balance the budget and invest in the country. It's brilliant. And that is why it is being completely ignored by Washington. <laughs> well, of course we can't do that. That's sensible. Why can't we do that? Why aren't we at least having a discussion about that? Why isn't the president, who ran as a progressive, who beat Hillary Clinton because she was more he was more progressive than her, that she voted for the Iraq war, she was too conservative. He beat John McCain because he was like George Bush and he was too conservative. Why isn't the president, who ran as a progressive, isn't even considering the progressive budget? Instead, he's spending all of his time responding to the draconian, ridiculous, radical right-wing Paul Ryan budget, and to his own deficit commission, which in my opinion brought together 
an incredibly right-wing budget. It's not quite as insane as Paul Ryan's budget, but it's pretty close. Why is he only considering that option and not the progressive option? That's it. Very good question. Unfortunately, we don't have a good answer for it. from New Mexico. I just got through writing a uh, letter to the editor on the same gist of that, that our bloodlust, it's just, it's, it's crazy. And whatever happened to fair treatment of war criminals, irregardless of how bad or how uh, repulsive we think Osama bin Laden is, uh, do we, does he not deserve the same treatment that we would like to have under similar circumstances for our own, our own leaders or our own citizens? Um, I was very disappointed in the response, and I, I, I want to support you in your feelings there. Anyway, uh, that's, that's my thoughts. Um, do well. I enjoy your show. Bye-bye. Hi, Jay. This is Connie from Olympia, Washington. Um, I just wanted to call in and thank you for your comments about um, the death of Osama bin Laden. I thought it was very brave of you to put forward that um that you're feeling, I feel the same way, and um, when I've told, most people who I've told um, have rebuked me for it, um, reminding me, you know, feeling that it's appropriate to remind me about the 3,000 people who died on 9-11, and that may be, but at the same time, I feel like, at the same time, reveling in the streets over it is, um, it doesn't become America, and I think it lessens us to see that happening in our streets. I would rather that we celebrate the, the peaceful overtures in the world, like the recent um, overthrow of Jose Mubarak. But uh, anyway, thanks so much for all you do, and uh, keep up the good work. Thanks. Bye. Hey, Jay, I'm laughing at your outgoing message. Uh, this is Scott from Boulder. I just listened to your talk about your feelings about bin Laden being killed. And that inspired me to share with you my feelings about it, which I haven't heard anywhere either. And um, they are this, you know, perhaps he's responsible for killing 3,000 Americans. I'm not entirely convinced of that, but that's not my point. Even if he is responsible for that, even if he's responsible for killing all those Americans and he's personally responsible for killing all of the troops in both fronts in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, that still doesn't add up to even a significant percentage of the number of innocent civilians that we, the United States, have killed since 9-11 in this war on terror. And um, that equation hasn't been mentioned anywhere in the left or anywhere else that I've heard that if you want to measure evil in terms of it's the number of people killed um, there's this Bible quote that comes to mind that says remove the log from your own eye before taking the speck from your neighbor's eye and it seems like bin Laden in his wildest dreams is not as effective a killing machine 
as we are. And if we are going to decry killing innocent civilians as evil, then we really need to look at what we're doing and what we're funding, not only in the Middle East, but also even in uh, Mexico and Honduras and Latin America and all over the world, because that seems to be something we do a lot of. And uh, I'm personally afraid to actually say this, like on talk radio and get pilloried or whatever. I don't need to paint a target on my back, but it just seems that we need to, if we're in the calculus of evil, how do you measure that? If you kill Americans, does that make you more evil than killing someone else or what? Anyway, that's what I have to say. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. I'm just going to do a short commentary, hopefully short, and then um, actually after the show, I'm going to end the show and then play more voicemails for you guys. So if you're uh, you know particularly interested in voicemails, I have plenty of them that I want to uh, get through, so you can stick around for those after the show. And if you're not interested, well, then you can skip it. First of all, I want to thank uh, everyone for their patience as I talked almost endlessly about the fundraiser I was involved with recently. Uh, That is over. The big event happened on Wednesday of this week. It was a great success. Uh, Lots of fun and lots of money raised. Good times had by all. Of course, I also want to thank in particular those who actually donated to the cause that, that, uh, you know, they almost certainly had not heard of before I started talking about it. So it was great that they actually were willing to donate any amount. Um, So I want to thank Eunice, who actually showed up, uh, and it was great to meet him. Glenn, George, Rocco, Sarah, Mike, Linda, Trish, Cheryl, Brett, Katie, who also showed up, uh, and it was great to meet her, along with her friend, uh, Lauren, who is not even a listener, but came anyways. Uh, Great to meet uh, Katie and Lauren. Robert, Kathleen, Tim, Diana, Rich, Chris, Nathan, and Keith, uh, who Keith, who also uh, made an appearance, another friend slash listener uh, of the show. So thanks to all of those. And then on top of that, I want to especially thank those who went way above and beyond, you know, the normal donation amount. Uh, Linda, who also happens to be my mother and always comes through on fundraising events like this. Uh, Susan, Paxton, Kurt, and Shane. Uh, all you know really came through and uh, and everyone combined helped me reach my fundraising goal so hooray and now for the last time just if you want to know anything about this organization that I've been talking about uh, just check them out at newleaderscouncil.org uh, now finally for today I wanted to uh, respond to Scott from Boulder he was the last voicemail that you heard uh, kind of talking about how we uh, you know America should take a look at itself before we really start uh, pointing fingers at the destruction that other people cause, because we certainly uh, inflict our share of destruction. And, you know, this is an incredibly nuanced thing to try to talk about. It's incredibly difficult. And I I actually want to play a clip that I heard and chose not to play, you know, as part of the show, as part of the Bin Laden show, because I felt like it was not even something that I entirely disagree with. I think I might dis- disagree with how he says it and how uh, how it's not quite as nuanced as I'd want it to be. And, you know, probably because of that in bad taste. But so that uh, Scott doesn't feel like he's entirely alone. I wanted to play a clip from a commentator who you hear very often on the show. So take a listen to this. 
I'm Matt Rothschild, the editor of the Progressive Magazine, with my progressive point of view, which you can also grab off our website over at progressive.org. I always rejoice at the death of a mass murderer, so I'm happy bin Laden's gone, and I understand the sense of relief or closure or even triumph that many Americans feel today, but it's worth grappling with precisely what it is that bin Laden did and why it is that Americans are chanting, USA, USA. What bin Laden did was to use violence as a ready tool to advance his purposes. What bin Laden did was to wantonly sacrifice the lives of innocent people in service of those purposes. In this regard, bin Laden is no different a mass murderer than William McKinley was in the Philippines. Bin Laden's no different a mass murderer than Harry Truman was when he dropped the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Bin Laden's no different a mass murderer than Lyndon Johnson was in Vietnam. No different a mass murderer than Ronald Reagan was when he funded and trained the Contras against Nicaragua or backed the Salvadoran military against the rebels there. And bin Laden is no different a mass murderer than George W. Bush was in Iraq. Oh, I'm sorry. There is one big difference. Bin Laden killed far fewer innocent people than any one of those U.S. presidents. So I think it's probably pretty obvious to just about all why, you know, even if you were to agree with those sentiments, why that would be considered by many uh, to be in poor taste and why I chose to not play it on the show until now just to discuss it. Uh, first, what I agree with on that is kind of the uh, the stepping outside of our normal box. I like doing that. I like uh, challenging ourselves to recognize that, you know, war is terrible. Killing people is terrible, uh, no matter how you do it, if you do it in a very theoretically civilized and organized way through a, you know, an organized government with an organized military, and then you go and kill hundreds of thousands of people in other countries, there's a good argument to be made that that is not really better than, you know, killing people in a more haphazard way. So, so that's, you know, I agree with that. What I disagree with was his complete lack of nuance to to say that, uh, you know, an organized government hopefully governing with the consent of the governed, taking actions on behalf of their citizenry, and to say that that is no different, as he said over and over again, it is no different than, you know, what a terrorist like bin Laden does, I think, um, I think is overtly obtuse. So basically, I don't even really mind the point he's making. But I think that it is something that requires more nuance than he was willing to give. And I think, I think he excluded the nuance on purpose to help punctuate his point. And although I can appreciate that tactic, I suppose, it, it totally rubbed me the wrong way. But uh, if you have thoughts on that, bring on the voicemails. I'd love to hear it. 206-202-3410. I got to get out of here. I'm going to thank Lori M., and uh, who signed up for a monthly membership, a socialist monthly membership back on January 12th and has stuck with the show since then, and Roberta S., who signed up for a leftist membership. She paid for a full year in advance back on November 13th. So huge thanks to Lori and Roberta and all of the members and donors who keep the show going. You guys know I couldn't do it without you. Everyone, everyone, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it. Uh, stay tuned into the show and help spread the word online by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. Get details about the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information is always listed in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 11 times a month thanks entirely to the support of the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bye, bye.
from Miami, Florida. Um, I was just calling to comment on all the calls we've been getting lately about not using Mumia Bijamal or MSNBC for this or that reason. Um, but the thing is, you are like the editorial commentary newspaper. We don't always agree with you. I've been a listener for years. We don't always agree with you, but I appreciate where you're coming from, and I understand your point. And as listeners, we tune in to hear your side, to hear each clip, and how you put it together in a collage of sounds, and the message those sounds try to convey. Um, I agree with you that the message is way more important than the messenger is. And if a great messenger is in MSNBC, or damn it, if one day it's in Fox, then by all means use it. I don't listen to your show because you do what I want or you pick the sources I want. I listen to you because it's your own point of view from the sources you value. And that's how it's always been. That's how it always should be. And that's what I love about the best of the left. It's not mainstream. It's not just what they see to you. It's what you make out of what they're presenting you with. And it's an amazing, valuable source of information and all sorts of topics. So fuck it. Do whatever you want. You, you do an amazing job inspiring people on the left to act more than just so that's it that's my thing and one more thing um i would recommend to your listeners um wtf what the fuck with mark Marin? it's a comedy podcast he is hilarious and the smartest man in the world with greg troops also a podcast um both very funny to lighten up the hearts after we get worried and see how fucked up the world is I hope you have an amazing day. Keep up the amazing work and fuck all the naysayers. Bye. Hey, Jay. This is Scott calling again from Arroyo Grande, California. Just wanted to call and comment on uh, your views about uh, Osama bin Laden uh, and his death and how you felt about that. Um, actually, I completely 100% agree with you. I was very um, put off and upset. It's kind of disturbed by people celebrating a death, whether it be Osama bin Laden or whether it be a, a murderer on death row. That these things should not be celebrated. They should be recognized but not celebrated. They are still human beings. 
they do horrible things, which is deplorable, but to celebrate and to dance in the streets like we, like, you know, like we just won the championship is absolutely uh, uncalled for. So those are my views, um, kind of with you. I don't think you should feel bad. I know you're, you're kind of struggling in your head with how you feel about it, but just know you're not alone and, and, and other people feel the same way. Thanks. Love the show. Keep it up. Hey, Jay, this is Carlos calling in from the Chicago area. Um, I just finished listening to the May 7th Best of Left episode on foreign policy, and I just got through to your um, your comments about how you felt about the assassination of Osama bin Laden. And I have to say that I think it's actually really admirable to feel that way. Not necessarily what you said about being apathetic, but about not being happy that he was dead and about not wanting to go out and celebrate out on the streets. And like like you, um, I felt that way. And also like you, I felt that way before I saw what like the left pundits and what the right pundits were saying. It was once I saw that everybody was celebrating the death of, a, of, of another person that I was, you know, I was like, this isn't, this isn't something that should be, I guess, worth celebrating over like, like your team just won the Super Bowl, because there's so many things go into it. Like I am, I am a pacifist. I'm against war. I'm against capital punishment. So even though it was somebody as as bad as Osama bin Laden, I still think that celebrating a person's death, especially when when the celebration is is making it seem like his his, his the killing of him was worth what we the mess we have in Iraq and and in Afghanistan and with all the deaths from that happened on 9-11. It just, just, it just doesn't seem right to me. It doesn't seem patriotic to me or very American to me. And I just want to say that um, I really appreciate the way, I really appreciate you telling us what you felt and that I felt the same way. Thank you. Hi, Jay. Uh, this is Alp from New York. Thank you for the great work you are doing and thank you very much for your response to Bin Laden's killing it was really a big relief for me because I was deeply disappointed by some leading uh, progressive uh, media figures like John Stewart, uh, Stephen Colbert, uh, and Cenk Uyghur, like uh, celebrated it like a sports event. And uh, I don't know what is next for such an approach. I mean, if these people in Times Square, they had a chance, would they just chop it as off, put it on a spike and walk New York streets? And if so, then how much uh, did we advance really since those dark middle ages? Um, I believe we should be setting uh, much higher, much better standards uh, for ourselves. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Hey, Jay, this is Nick from Santa Clara. Just calling, I finished up your podcast uh, where at the end you were talking about the, the Osama bin Laden killing. And um, I, I just wanted to bring up a point that I, I, I haven't heard uh, yet. And I, I think it's, it's something that, that we're missing a lot. And my feelings on it are, are that we, we missed out on a, on a really good opportunity here. Um, our country kind of, we, we, 
we rely on on this belief in the judicial system, and this this belief that every person, no matter no matter what they've done, should should have a fair trial. In killing Osama bin Laden, we missed out on an opportunity to really prove to the world that we believe in that. I feel like instead we just we gave into our emotions and said, "Oh yeah, let's 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 just kill him because he's he's public enemy number one." But but wow, wouldn't it have been great had we put him through our process and just really proven to the world this is what we believe in? It works. This is how how things should be done. Even even public enemy number one can be can can be brought through this process and and successfully tried and and wow look at us we did it that is that is just amazing anyways that's my opinion i i feel like we really missed out on a on a great opportunity there anyways thanks love the show jay keep it up bye